Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's going pretty good, besides this little leg that we have in our internet connection. Yeah, we're having some serious Zoom lag at the moment, so we might sound a little bit off. <laughs> but you are an expert editor, so I'm sure you can fix us later as well. I will Yay, extra work. I will do my best. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. What's another hour when you're editing for 13? <laughs> right? It's nothing. It's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Well, we have another great case inspired by Mindhunter for today. Rather than covering the case of a serial killer like our last main episode on David Carpenter, this time we will be focusing on a single homicide. Today we will be discussing the bizarre murder of Carla Brown. And it's a good one. It's not very well known though. It's so good. Yeah. I hadn't heard about it before the book, so I'm really excited to tell everybody about it. But first, we are going to chit-chat just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a tiny bit. We'll try to get through it quickly because we've got a lot to get through. we got some some talking to do. (laughs) Lots of talking. Mostly me. I got the most talking to do here. (laughs) Um, I don't think I have any current events from cases that we've talked about. Do you, Tara? I don't. I just wanted to touch on some feedback from our previous episode, though, because I really liked that episode. Just saying, I thought it was like really fun because talking about a serial killer. Yeah, loved it. Yeah, loved it. Most of my people that I talk to on a regular basis are behind on the podcast. So (sighs) you guys need to hurry up. No kidding. Give me some feedback, please. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The feedback I got was that it was really good and it was really creepy. So, I mean, can't go wrong with those responses. It's kind of yeah, what I'm going perfect. for. That's yeah. Awesome. It's kind of my goal, <laughs> which is a little weird, but I like it. Right? Really cool. <laughs> really creepy. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Thumbs us up perfectly. Cool <laughs> <laughs> and creepy. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not so cool sometimes, but I like to think we are. Yeah. Yeah. We're cool to each other, I guess. That's all that matters. <laughs> and on our last episode, our fluff and stuff question was great. So many responses. The question. So many responses. Way to go, guys. Yeah. I was just so happy reading everybody's responses. Oh, it was so exciting. Our question was Who is your favorite serial killer? I had people like posting on my personal page because I'd shared our post and like, Loved yeah, it. Awesome. I just feel like it gives you insight into people that I wouldn't have known before. <laughs> I know. Not I know. sure exactly Great. what it means all the time, but I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. I know. Very yeah. cool. And like, I, oh, I probably spent 10 with my cousin purge her closet and organize it. And so then we're talking about it. And so we had some really like really good discussions about, you know, is like Ramirez her favorite or like, mm-hmm. you know whoever hers was John Wayne Gacy was her favorite classic I was telling my friend about um Ed Kemper I was giving her like a really detailed like this is all the fucked up things he did but we are going through a Starbucks drive-thru so I had to keep pausing like oh I shouldn't (laughs) say anything right now because you know they probably don't want to hear about that while they're working (laughs) they'd be like what probably not (laughs) probably 
make some people question me. So yeah, but that was fun. I really love talking about that. Yeah. Um, super interesting. Yeah. On Instagram, our favorite responses. First one is from Demera Montgomery. And she said, I love the shock factor of Ed Gein, even though he didn't really kill too many people. Great and, answer. Yes. Loved I it. I like that answer because I had the same thought. I almost picked Ed Gein, but then I'm like, technically he's not a serial killer and I will get in a lot of shit for picking him, but he's fascinating. Like, oh my God. So screwed up. It's more of a grave digger and seamstress, but I I love it. Seamster? (laughs) Okay, seamster? I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what it's called. What is whatever the male equivalent of seamstress is? (laughs) I mean, his goal was to make a woman's suit. So I feel like he wouldn't mind being called a seamstress. Maybe, yeah, probably. But I can't can't ask him for his preference, so... I don't know. We can't speak on Mr. Gein's behalf. No, no. no. And, and we shouldn't. <laughs> and we don't want to, really. No, no, not really. No. But he's a pretty interesting dude. Very cool. And XS Podcast said, is it messed up that I say Dahmer? Straight up, I would have been an easy target for him. So handsome when he was younger. But my saving grace, he didn't like men with tattoos, of which I have many. So few. <laughs> and that's the, the Xander and Stone podcast. Yes. And they seem like very cool people. I creep them a little bit and I like am so jealous of Xander's voice. He's got like the loveliest voice and accent ever. So oh, yeah. Is it one of those voices that you can just listen to and just oh, like melt? Yes, absolutely. And then I became very jealous. And then I'm like, why can't my voice sound nice? So, you know, (laughs) everything's a competition and I don't like when people are better than me. (laughs) Well, we just have our fun Canadian accents. So we just got to roll with that. Maybe, maybe somebody feels the same way about our Canadian accents. I don't know. I think we're pretty soothing. I've started baking to us. So, Mm, you know, yes. Meditation while baking. (laughs) If our voices soothe you, please let us know. It will make my day. Yeah, please. Awesome. Well, are we ready? I think we're ready. I think I'm ready. Yep. Wine glass in hand. Yeah, friends. Grab grab your glass and get cozy. (laughs) Let's talk about murder. Tink. And yes, I did say grab your grass at first. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah, I noticed that. (laughs) How many glasses of wine have you had? Uh, This is number three. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also on drink number three. So this is going to be a great episode. (laughs) So yeah, grab your grass. (laughs) First out of contact quote. We got it. I love it. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I don't know. I think I like that we don't speak on behalf of Mr. Gein or whatever that was. (laughs) I think that will make it I'm pretty sure that's going to make the cut. Awesome. (laughs) Love it. Oh, amazing. (laughs) So like I mentioned at the top of the show, my story today is one of the many cases mentioned in the book Mindhunter by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. I know I said this last time, but I'm going to say it again. If you have not read the book, that is fine. You don't have to read the book in order to listen to the podcast. 
Although if you have read the book, please let us know your thoughts. We would love for our book club episodes to be much more interactive with our audience. And Michelle, do you want to tell the people how they can get involved and be a part of the show? Absolutely. We have our main book club questions posted on the website under the tab called questions, and you can also find them on our Instagram highlights. If you have any responses to those questions or just thoughts on the book in general, email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com and our website is murderandmerlot.podbean.com. Yeah, be like Scott Hemingway from Dark Poutine and tell us your thoughts on Mindhunter. If Scott can spare a moment to talk to us, then you can too. Oh my God, that was like uh, the best freaking day. I swear to God. (laughs) It was pretty freaking cool. (laughs) Okay, so like Scott Hemingway, former co-host of Dark Poutine, commented on our Instagram post about Mindhunter about how it was his favorite book. And then we got into this like, big chat about it and he told me that I could you know talk about his responses on our show and then I fangirled at him like publicly fangirled at him on Instagram <laughs> and he actually said the word squee to me so <laughs> which was so which absolutely made my day and he's just such a cool person to talk to and yeah just oh I we love him to tell you more about his responses when we talk about our book club episodes so. yes which will be our next episode so we're yeah, looking forward so. to that. And yes. if you want to tell us about Mindhunter, then make sure to send in your responses before next Sunday, please. And thank you. Yes, that would be amazing. That would be great. Okay. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I even <laughs> wrote on our script, cue Michelle fangirling over Scott. Because <laughs> I knew it happened. Yeah, you didn't have to write that. You knew it. Yeah, it was, yeah. was going to happen. Yeah. It was coming. It's happened a lot since. Yeah. yeah. I just replay it in my head and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like we talked to those people. That's yeah. yeah. I was asked about our podcast the other day. Sorry for another sidebar, but they asked what my favorite part of it was. And I was like, probably talking to all the cool people that we have talked to, like other podcast hosts, like Scott and Elena from Morbid. And Morbid. I talked and... to David Thibodeau, an actual Waco survivor. We messaged Greg Greg Olson. Olson. Like, it's like, oh, it's so cool. It's honestly the coolest thing ever that we are actually interacting with these people and Billy Jensen as well on Instagram. I was going to say, don't forget Billy. Don't forget Billy. I almost, (laughs) but I brought it back around. We got Billy. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, little sidebar, but it's so freaking cool, guys. Love it. So cool. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into it. This is the case of Carla Brown's murder, inspired by Chapter 14, Who Killed the All-American Girl? Carla Brown was born in Lima, Ohio, on February 28, 1956. As she grew older, she was becoming a beautiful young woman with a bright future and a smile that could light up a room. And I'm sure we've all watched enough true crime documentaries to know what that line means. Mm And it goes so well. She was considered to be the All-American Girl as she had wavy blonde hair, was less than five feet tall, and had a great figure. Which I feel weird for saying, but apparently it's important, as it was brought up in, like, every source for this case. Is it, though? Is it important? Kind of just feels creepy. Right? Like, women are beautiful no matter what their shapes. Sorry. Exactly. We get it. She was beautiful. You don't have to talk about All-American standards. Right? We don't have to talk about Uh her body, but okay. Anyways. At Roxana High School, she was remembered as a popular and peppy cheerleader. 
Her close friends also knew the sensitive and introverted side of her as well. Carla was devoted to her boyfriend, Mark Fair, who is described as strong, athletically built, and over a foot taller than his girlfriend. They truly made a great couple. Once out of high school, Mark became an electrician and Carla went to college. After five years of dating, they got engaged and bought a house together in Wood River, Illinois. It was a single-story, white, wooden-sided house on a tree-lined street. They spent about two weeks working on their new place at 979 Acton Avenue to make it move in ready. On Tuesday, June 20th, 1978, Carla and Mark threw a party for all of their friends that had helped them with the move. After the party, later that night, they returned to their apartment to finish packing. They were hoping to officially move in the next day and spend their first night in their new home. It just sounds so like perfect storybook. Yeah. Right? Like as it should have been. Tree lined street, you know, like engaged in a new house. Like that's supposed to be the best years yeah. of your life, you know? Totally. But it didn't quite work out that way, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. Hence pretty sad. On Wednesday morning, Mark left for work and Carla went back to Acton Avenue so she could work on unpacking and organizing. Later that day, Mark got off work around 4.30 and headed over to a friend's house whose name was Tom Figenbaum. Tom lived on the same block as Mark's parents and had agreed to help Mark move a large doghouse from his parents' backyard. The two men arrived at Acton Avenue at about 5.30. While Tom was backing his truck into the driveway, Mark went into the house to get Carla. When he couldn't find her, he wasn't overly concerned as she had likely just ran out to pick something up for the house. He did notice, however, that she had left the back door unlocked, which led to the basement, and that was a bit strange. He made a mental note to remind her to be more careful about that in the future. Dun, dun, dun. Mark carried on and eventually brought his friend inside to give him a tour of the new place. First, they looked at the main floor, then the kitchen, then they proceeded to the basement. Right away, they knew something was off. Small tables were overturned. Something was spilt on the couch. It was just a mess, even though Carla had been organizing the space the night before. Mark turned to go back upstairs to look for Carla, but something in the laundry room caught his eye. What he saw was horrifying. Not only did he see his fiance's lifeless body in the room, but it was displayed in a way that was truly disturbing. Carla was on her knees and bent forward, with her head and shoulders submerged in a barrel of water. Her hands were tied behind her back with an electrical cord, and two socks were tied around her neck. She was naked from the waist down, wearing only a buttoned-up, heavy sweater. Mark screamed and rushed over, pulling her head from the water. He laid her down on her back and noticed a deep gash across her forehead, another on her jaw, and a cut on her nose. Her face was blue and puffy, her eyes were open, but it was obvious that she was dead. Ugh, my heart. Horrible. Poor guy. Like, I just, my heart went out to him. Absolutely. He was completely heartbroken and distraught. I can't even imagine. Mark collapsed. He was in complete agony. He asked Tom to cover her body. His friend found a red blanket and laid, laid it over top of her. Then they phoned the police. Arriving only a few minutes later was Officer David George of the Wood River Police Department. Mark and Tom were waiting outside the front door when the officer pulled up, and then led him to the basement. During this time, Mark was hardly able to contain himself, and rightfully so. Shortly thereafter, more officers showed up to secure and inspect the area. This included Illinois State Police Inspector Alva Bush, who was an experienced crime scene technician. 
Right away, there were a few setbacks with the investigation. First off, Alva was unable to get the flash attachment to work on his camera. Another officer had brought along a camera as well, so they used that for the crime scene photos instead. However, the camera only had black and white film. Another setback was that since the couple had just had a party the night before, there were many different fresh fingerprints around the house. They had to analyze each of them in order to find out if they belonged to a person who had been in the house legitimately or if they belonged to the killer. As mentioned before, the house was a mess and the investigators had to determine what was out of place and where each item had originally come from. Fortunately, since the couple was just moving in, Mark had a good idea of where everything had been prior to the attack. For one thing, the sweater that Carla was found wearing was certainly out of place. It had been packed in one of the barrels, and Mark knew that she had not been wearing it earlier that day. As well, she only wore it for special occasions during the winter. And again, this was in June. Another interesting detail about the sweater is that it was buttoned all the way up. During such a violent attack, there was no doubt that the buttons would have been ripped off or open. This meant that the killer had partially dressed the victim once she was already dead. More clothes that were previously packed up had been scattered all around the basement floor. Around her neck were a pair of men's socks tied tightly together. Under the ligature, Carla's neck was bruised quite badly. The socks had been kept in an upstairs bedroom dresser. The extension cord that bound her hands behind her back had the ends cut off and it had been packed in a box in the basement prior to the attack. So it's just crazy that it's like all these items are from all over the all house. All over the house. I know. Right? It's, it's very strange. You have to go upstairs to get the socks to strangle her with? Like, how long were you in the house with her? Yeah, exactly. One of the first things that Mark noticed when he went into the basement earlier that day was that something had been spilled on the couch. It was actually covered in blood and the cushions were soaked with water. A stand of TV trays were overturned and blood was also found splattered on the floor. It appeared that this is where the attack and the blunt force trauma to the head had taken place. Investigators then noticed something strange in the rafters of the laundry room. It was a coffee pot from the coffee maker the couple kept in the kitchen. Elva was able to lift a few latent fingerprints from the glass, but unfortunately, they were too incomplete to be useful. So strange. So weird. Right? So weird. The autopsy was performed on June 22nd by pathologist Dr. Harry Parks. He observed two large lacerations on the face and a fracture of the jaw at the tip of the chin, though he could not palpate any further fractures to the skull. He also noted several bruises, including the severe ones around the throat. This was consistent with strangulation, which he determined to be the cause of death. He estimated that the murder occurred about six hours before the body had been found around 5.45 p.m. This could vary as much as two or three hours, he clarified. He found no evidence of water in the lungs. Therefore, he determined that the victim had not been breathing when her head was submerged in the water. At this point, investigators needed to establish the events that took place on and before June 21st leading up to the murder. They reached out to anyone in the neighborhood that may have seen anything and searched for any friends or family that may have had contact with Carla just prior to her death. They started with the neighbor, Paul Main, as he had seen the couple and their friends next door when they were having their party. He had been home the day of the murder as well. With him was his friend John Pranty, who had actually known Carla from high school. The two men, plus another friend, had been outside as the new neighbors were moving in. They had all hoped to join the party next door, but they never received an invite. One of the couple's friends, Bob Lewis, recalled one of the men calling to Carla from across the driveway. He knew her by name, and Bob heard Carla say, 
You've got a great memory. It's been a long time. He described Paul Maine's friend as a rough-looking, long-haired guy, which, of course, would have been John Pranty. This encounter was a bit unsettling to Bob, so he let Mark know and suggested that he should be careful of these neighbors until they got to know them a bit better. Mark was not too concerned at the time as he was aware that Carla had known the man from high school and that he was just visiting. As mentioned previously, Paul Maine had been home on the day of the murder that took place right next door. He remembered being on the front porch for most of the afternoon, and again, he was accompanied by his friend John. John recalled being at his friend's house briefly that morning after applying for a job at a local oil refinery, but then he left early to apply for other jobs. Also on the day of the murder, Carla had spoken to a few people on the phone. At about 9.30, she had called a friend, Jamie, and all had seemed fine. Later on, Jamie tried calling back at about 2.30, but received no answer. At about 10 a.m., Carla had made another phone call, this time to a friend named Deborah. Shortly after the call, Deborah had left to visit Carla at her house. When she arrived at 979 Acton Avenue at about 11 a.m., no one answered the door, even though Carla's vehicle was parked outside. She continued trying to reach her friend on the phone throughout the rest of the day, but again received no answer. Carla had made another call earlier that morning at about 9 a.m. to Helen Fair, which was Mark's mother. She didn't reach her at that time, but Helen returned her call somewhere between 10 and 11 a.m. The conversation was interrupted by Carla when she said, Helen, someone is at the door. I'll call you back. The future mother-in-law never heard back from Carla, and her phone calls later that day were not answered. Oh, that just, like, gives you the willies, right? Yeah. Knowing that that was probably the last, like, friendly person she talked to. Yeah. Was her mother-in-law, and, like, I'll call you right back. Like, how many right? times have we done that? Exactly but then never receiving a call. I mean, nobody comes over anymore because of stupid COVID. So, right. You know, it's (laughs) likely to happen. True. (laughs) I guess it would be like a real red flag then. Like what, what is somebody doing at your house? (laughs) You better stay on the line. Yeah. (laughs) They're not supposed to be there. (laughs) A woman was driving down the street with her grandson and they were looking for the dentist office. Once they realized they were headed in the wrong direction, they used Carla's driveway to turn around at about 10.45 a.m. Both occupants in the vehicle remembered seeing a woman, matching the description of the victim, talking to a man in the driveway. The witness remembered that the woman had started walking back towards the house, but they were unable to give a good description of the man, even under hypnosis. In the search for suspects, the police questioned many of Carla's friends in order to find out if she was having issues with anyone. They all said that Carla was very well-liked and had no enemies that they were aware of. A former roommate of the victim, however, did have someone in mind. Carla was quite young when her father passed away, and since then her mother had married another man named Joe Shepard Sr. At this point, the couple is now divorced, but the roommate reported that Carla did not get along with her former stepfather. He was always trying to come on to her friends and had even hit Carla in the past. Shepard had inserted himself into the investigation as the night of the murder, he barraged the police with questions. This is something we know killers will do sometimes. He was obviously considered as a suspect, but they were unable to find any evidence that linked him to the crime. Of course, the next suspects considered were Carla's fiancé, Mark Fair, and his friend, Tom Fagenbaum. Always have to investigate the spouse and those that discover the body. That's like every single time. Lesson Rule number one. Yep. Lesson 101 of my true crime course. <laughs> right? If you don't investigate the spouse, you're doing your job wrong. Absolutely. 
I'm such a meatball. Uh, I actually wrote, <laughs> that's like lesson one in my true crime course. Sign up today and you'll receive some knowledge and maybe a sticker. I'm definitely losing my mind at this point of writing. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, don't forget we have a review giveaway. Like write us a review. We'll send you that's a sticker. True. And you'll get a sticker. It's all connected. <laughs> For real though, until the end of December, give us a review. We'll send you some swag. Yep. All the details are on our Facebook and our Instagram posts. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah, so yeah. anyways. We're professionals. We're so good at this. And back to the story. <laughs> <laughs> back to the suspects. Uh, Mark was the one that found the body. He had access to the house and he was the closest person to the victim. But he did have a solid alibi as he was at work when the murder took place and he had seen and spoke to many people that day. There was no question in anyone's mind that Mark's grief was genuine and profound. As the investigation went on, they decided to polygraph all the potential suspects and those that had recent contact with Carla before her death. This included Mark, Tom, the stepfather, Joe Shepard, and the neighbors. <laughs> I'm sorry, do you read that? It's supposed to say Paul Maine, and I wrote Pain Maine. <laughs> and it Pain just... Maine. That's got, his. Uh, that's his rapper name. It just got me right in the giggle dick, I guess. <laughs> we should. We should drink heavily before uh, we record all the time. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fun. <laughs> we haven't had the giggles this much since like our first recording. <laughs> well, I think there's it's been good. a there's been a few, but I mean, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Excellent. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. So Paul Main and John Pranty were also polygraphed. The first three passed without any issues. No one had really failed, actually, though Paul's results were a bit more off than the rest. He had been home the day of the murder and claimed that his friend John had been with him on his porch and hadn't left. Pranty, on the other hand, said that he had left in order to apply for some jobs and therefore could not confirm where Paul had been during that time. Since Paul's results were questionable, he remained a suspect, although just like the rest, there had been no evidence that actually tied him to the crime. Although the police worked hard to find Carla's killer, two years went by and they were still not any closer. The quiet community was still deeply affected by the horrible crimes, and so were the authorities, some more than others. Don Weber, state attorney, was one of those that couldn't let the case rest. He needed to show the public that this would not be tolerated in his district and reactivated the case in 1980. Another individual obsessed over the case was crime scene investigator Elva Bush. He was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when he saw an opportunity to push the case forward. He attended a presentation at the Sheriff's Department given by Dr. Homer Campbell, who was an expert from the University of Arizona in the computer enhancement of photographs. After the presentation, Elva approached Dr. Campbell and said, Hey, Doc, have I got a case for you. He agreed to have a look at the crime scene and autopsy photos with the goal of determining the exact weapon that had been used on the victim. Um, when I was reading this and I got mm -hmm. to this part, I was shocked when I learned that Alva was a dude. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I totally had this picture of like this like classy, like put together lady because Alva oh, yeah. seems like such a like put together lady name. I don't know. I'm sorry. I, know. <laughs> I, yeah, I was, Bush. I'm sorry. But, I'm sorry too. I, 
I was a little disappointed because I had this picture of this badass woman and like right and she's like I am not letting this go but no yeah. it's this, this dude which it's a dude we still you for not letting it go you are still a hero of the case yeah. but not how I pictured you <laughs> we in your pencil skirt love and heels <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's your prerogative that's fine but just I guess not, not what we had in mind <laughs> It's so funny how your brain just creates oh. these pictures. And then when you learn something else, you're like, oh, well, I know your outfit doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But then I'm so stubborn. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. No, <laughs> Even though like, I don't know this person, but no, you're wrong. Fine, Elva. Wear yeah. pants. Fine, Whatever. Elva. <laughs> you do you. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the photos were in black and white, he was still able to analyze them thoroughly. He determined that the deep gashes on Carla's face were made by a claw hammer and that the injuries to the chin and forehead had been made by the wheels of the overturned TV tray table. Like, what? How? How do you do that? I don't understand. That's so cool. <laughs> I know. And just like the description of the injuries, I'm like, oh, like mm. cringing the whole time. Like, oh, yeah. Oh. No. Oh, totally. That would be absolutely awful. I just think it's cool that they could determine that, not that that actually happened because that's the worst. I know. Yeah. That isn't even the craziest part. The next thing he said to Alva changed the investigation completely. What about the bite marks? He asked. Do you guys have any suspects in the bite marks on her neck? What bite marks? Alva replied. No one had previously noticed the bite marks, even on the autopsy. Dr. Campbell was confident that if they had found the suspect, they could get a good comparison with the images he raised. Currently, bite mark analysis is controversial, and some consider it junk science, but we will come back to that later on. At the time of the investigation, however, this was a breakthrough. It was their first piece of solid evidence, and as far as they were concerned, it was practically the same as a fingerprint. Which sounds very exciting, but mm -hmm. it really isn't it really isn't like yeah that's okay that's okay we'll come back to it <laughs> yes I could make a comment here but I'm sure you'll talk about that later what I'm going to comment about. I know what you're going to say and I did not include that in my story but we can certainly mention it later <laughs> okay okay because <laughs> I know you same brain same brain yes I know but it's your responsibility to remember now because <laughs> okay. now I will forget because I said it's that. on me. Okay. Don't worry. With this new vigor brought into the case, the police started going back through their original suspects. They were particularly interested in Paul Main. Dr. Campbell, however, was not able to match his bite sample to the autopsy photographs. An attempt was made to locate Paul's friend, John Pranty, but they were not able to do so at this time. So they just gave up? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, that was rude. <laughs> I mean, if those are their two main suspects, then they're not going to be making everybody who ever had contact with them do bite imprints. So no, that's true. That's true. Even with this new piece of evidence, the investigation again began to slow. Officers started to look for other resources to aid them, such as bringing in a psychic. Not surprisingly, though, this did little to help them. Okay. I know. <laughs> it always works out so well. It always floors me when they actually include them in their investigation, though, and they're like, maybe you're onto something. In so many cases in this era, psychics were called upon before the FBI. That makes total sense. I know. So strange. Weird. <laughs> Hindsight is 2020, I guess. 
I guess. <laughs> Fortunately, in March of 1982, Don Weber and two other investigators attended an annual training session that our good friend, Mr. John Douglas, was speaking at. I feel like we should cheer every time we say John Douglas's name, but that's just like, or we should have like a, you know, I had like an this applause feeling. <laughs> I had a feeling inside of me that was like, woohoo. But then I was like, no, contain yourself, you crazy person. We don't actually yeah. know him, <laughs> but we do. No, but we do. Yeah. We're like reading the book. I feel like I know him a lot better. So. Oh, yeah. It's very insightful into his life mm-hmm. and his mind. I really love it. Very. It's very interesting. Yes. Anyways. Anyways. Douglas was providing an overview of personality profiling and crime scene analysis, which was just what the investigation needed. After the presentation, the officers approached the profiler and asked for his assistance. He said he would be happy to help wherever he could. Another Wood River police officer, Rick White, had also attended the training session, and he too thought it would be a great approach to the Brown investigation. After speaking to Weber, White contacted John Douglas to arrange a meeting at Quantico. He wanted to be in the room with Douglas as he analyzed the crime scene photos and observed his reactions. Joining White on the journey was Assistant State Attorney Keith Jensen, Alva Bush, Randy Rushing, and the current Wood River Police Chief Don Greer. Upon meeting in the conference room, the investigators were eager to tell Douglas all about the case and their theories, but he didn't want to hear it. He prefers to analyze the file and the photos without anyone else's opinions before he draws his own conclusions. Douglas did appreciate their enthusiasm, however, as he generally isn't welcomed into investigations with open arms, but this time, the officers were there because they truly wanted to help, and they refused to give up. After looking at the photos for several minutes, Douglas was ready with his profile. He asked the crew, are you ready? You might want to record this which I just love. I love his confidence. <laughs> Me too. I feel like he's such a badass, right? He's just I like, know. bring it. All right, this is what I know. But I feel like it's also so effortless. You know, he's just so mm-hmm. good at it. And it's just how his brain works. He's like, are you ready? This is going to be great. It's going to be exactly what you need. So grab your pens, Let's grab your paper. It. Let's do this. So this is the information that John Douglas could tell about the crime and the killer. First of all, when bodies end up in water inside the house, whether it's in a bath, shower, or container, the goal is not to wash away evidence like most people may think. It actually indicates that the killer is trying to stage the crime scene to make it look like something it's not in order to throw off the investigation, which is fascinating because I did not know that. The police had already interviewed the killer. He has been cooperative with police so he can feel he can keep control of the situation. He was in the neighborhood or immediate vicinity. They would not have traveled far to commit the crime. He would have had to wash the blood off and get rid of his clothing. He knew the victim well enough that he was comfortable in the situation and knew he wouldn't be disturbed. He likely went to the house and offered to help her move. Carla knew him in some way and let him in. He did not have intentions of murder when he went into the house. If it was planned, he would have brought a weapon or a rape kit. Instead, he used manual strangulation and blunt force trauma, demonstrating a spontaneous act of anger or desperation. He had wanted some type of relationship or sex, but when she resisted, he decided the only way to save himself was to kill her. Soon after the strangulation, he panicked and tried to revive her by splashing water on her face. That is why the couch was soaking wet. That didn't work, however, and her face is now all wet. He decided to drag her body across the floor and pushed her head in a barrel of water. 
This was an attempt to draw attention away from what actually happened and staged the scene as if it was some bizarre kinky ritual that had taken place. The staging of the body had a second meaning as well. She rejected him, so this was his way of degrading her. To quote John Douglas directly, As in so many other cases, the more an offender does at a scene, even if it's an attempt to throw the police off the scent, the more clues and behavioral evidence he gives you to work with. Which is so fascinating. You'd think the more complicated so the case cool. would be, obviously, more complicated. But it's the opposite, so it's pretty neat. Continuing on with the killer's profile, he's in his mid to late 20s. He doesn't have experience in killing prior to this attack. He has an explosive, assaultive personality. Could have committed lesser crimes in the past. If he's ever been married, he is recently separated or is having marital discord. He is a real loser with a, self, <laughs> with a poor self-image. That's Douglas's words directly. I like that. <laughs> I loved it. He's <laughs> a real loser. He's just a real loser. He may come across as confident, but deep down, he's extremely inadequate. <laughs> Another zinger. <laughs> I love him. Average intelligence went no further than high school has some sort of shop or vocational training. He changed residences and or jobs. Once the heat died down and it would no longer be suspicious, he would likely leave town. May turn to alcohol, drugs, or cigarettes to relieve his tension. May have been drinking before the attack, which would have lowered his inhibition, but he wouldn't have been drunk as he wouldn't have done so much on the scene post-offense. He would have difficulty sleeping, become more and more nocturnal, and he would have problems with his sex life. If he had a regular job, he would be missing a lot of work. He would have changed his appearance. If he had a beard, he would shave it off. If he was clean-shaven, he would grow a beard. He is naturally scruffy and unkept, though, so any attempt to keep himself orderly would be physically and mentally exhausting, which, same. <laughs> I, <laughs> I also feel find that. Statement. Yes, I, I can relate. So, so much. Yes. <laughs> You want me to do my hair and my makeup? What? Right? It's one or the other. I can't do both. Yeah. Truly. No. <laughs> and if I do, I need like half a day. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> like, that is very accurate of how I live my life. I'm pretty sure the last time I put on makeup was Halloween. Nice. Pretty sure. <laughs> and that's okay. That's how it should be. Yeah. It's fine. His vehicle would be an old and not terribly well-maintained red or orange Volkswagen Beetle classic <laughs> yep he would be following the police investigation closely and would pass a polygraph test the anniversary of the killing and carla's birthday would be huge stressors for him he had probably visited her grave and may have even sent flowers or asked for her forgiveness so that was a lot <laughs> that was a mm -hmm. whole bunch a lot of information he was able to get from the crime scene photos which is the best my favorite it's so cool just how right? he can just be like, be that guy mm -hmm. who's like, looks at the pictures and he's like, all right, if I was the guy that did this, this is what I'd be like. Exactly. And he was able to do that in only a few minutes. It's not like he spent like a whole day, like analyzing and writing down his thoughts. No. He was just like, okay, this is how it is. This is what happened. And he just rattles it off. It's insane. So cool. After taking in all of this information, now the investigators need to make a plan for moving forward. Douglas advised that since the killer will be watching the investigation, they need to announce a new and promising lead, something that will show that the case is once again a top priority 
and they are making great progress. They are also to mention that they brought in an FBI profiler onto the case, and what he's telling them fits perfectly with the new evidence they have developed. The officers then mentioned that they had been advised by a forensic odontologist, Dr. Levine, that they should exhume the body as he, <laughs> as he said, a casket is cold storage for evidence, which I guess is true. <laughs> it's like the creepiest statement ever, but yeah, it's a, cool. It's a little morbid. That's okay. This would give them a better chance to make a definite match to the bite marks. Douglas agreed that this was exactly what they needed at this point in the investigation. He advised Weber to go on TV beforehand to announce that if the body is in good shape and the new exam turns up the evidence that they expect, they would be close to solving the murder. This public spectacle they were creating would be a huge stressor for the killer. He will be concerned and will want every detail. He may even call police directly to ask questions. They also need surveillance on the cemetery and photograph or video everyone that shows up. Once it is announced that the body is still in good condition, it will send the killer further over the edge. His behavior will change and he will further isolate himself. While all of this stress is building, the police should make, make a statement in the paper that is empathetic to the killer. Saying that they know what he's been going through, he did not intend to kill Carla, and that he's been carrying a huge weight on his shoulders for years. Douglas also helped in outlining an interrogation technique. Once the unsub is identified, he should be left to stew for a week so that he will be more likely to confess before being arrested. They need to use the facts about the crime to their advantage when interviewing him, such as, we know you carried her from here to here, or we know about the water. The investigators were very pleased with the help and information that they received from John Douglas. From the profile, they had determined that two of their initial interviewees still looked like strong suspects. <laughs> I did it again! Pain Mane! <laughs> Dear Lord! I think you should just call him that. Pain Mane, that's his Pain name. Main. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Mane and John Pranty. They had both been next door the day of the murder. At least John had been drinking beer that day. And their stories never quite lined up with each other's. Which could have been a result from the drinking or the low intelligence. Where one or both of them were lying. John had done better on the polygraph but they both fit the profile. Pranty a little better than Maine. He had been very cooperative, and once the heat had died down, he had left town, just like Douglas predicted. As the investigation went forward on these two men, the exhumation of the body went underway on June 1st, 1982. Dr. Levine had been on the scene, and it received a lot of coverage from the press. Fortunately, Carla's body was very well preserved. A new autopsy was performed by Dr. Mary Case. Unlike the first autopsy, Dr. Case found that the cause of death was actually drowning, not strangulation. Of course, the victim had been strangled, but she was still breathing to a minimal degree when her head was put into the water. This was determined as Carla had foam around her mouth when she was discovered. Dr. Case also found more damage to the skull than the original examiner did. Rather than just palpating the skull, she opened the cranial cavity and found further bruising to the scalp and found another skull fracture. Most importantly, during the autopsy, they were able to get the bite mark evidence that they needed. Like, who did that first autopsy and how did they miss all that shit? Well, yeah, even the first time I read about the initial autopsy, I, I found it very strange that they just palpated the skull for fractures. Like, that's yeah, like, not, that's not going to work. Yeah. no. Like, <clears throat> I mean, if they, were, the head. if they were very severe, sure, but X-ray the head. She's <laughs> not going to move. <laughs> that's true. No restraints needed. <laughs> no. Yeah. I thought it was very strange. And the fact that they missed that 
she actually drowned. I, that bothered me when I read it. I yeah, like, why? absolutely. How do you not see that on an ultra, on autopsy? autopsy? <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> we are intelligent people. <laughs> I tell you, we tell them this like every episode. I don't right? think they believe us anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Our cover is blown. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> but yeah, I was like the first time reading over the case, I was like, oh, well, you know, in a way, I'm glad she didn't drown. I'm glad she was not breathing when her head was put in the barrel. You know, know. that's obviously it's not good that she died, but drowning to me is terrifying. But then to find out that she actually still was breathing is awful. Even though it was just a little bit like, yeah, yeah. still, it's still bad. Oh yeah. And then I have a fun fact in here in the veterinary industry. We don't use the word autopsy when investigating a death. And Michelle knows more about this than I do, but I'm going to pretend I know things. <laughs> uh, you we, know things. I know, I know things, but then I talk and then Michelle's listening and then I'm like, oh, she's so much smarter than me. She's going to correct me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard us lately? I, I think yeah. we're both on the same level. Okay, good. As long as it's a level playing field, that's all that matters. <laughs> um, we usually use the terms postmortem examination or necropsy. In Latin, post means after and mortem means death. The word necropsy is broken up into two parts. Necro is a prefix for relating to a corpse or a death, and opsy is the suffix meaning medical examination. We use these terms instead because the word autopsy generally implies that the death is suspicious, and usually it involves murder cases, <laughs> generally. Yeah. We don't often do postmortems that are considered suspicious. They are usually done to provide closure when the cause of death was unexpected and the owner would like to know what happened or they are done when multiple animals are dying in a herd and we need to find out why in order to protect the rest of the herd from say an infectious disease or something like that. Exactly. I just right on the money. See thank you know you. things. <laughs> I just think postmortem animals and I was like, "Oh, we know about that." And I've helped with a lot of them. Yeah. I've only helped yeah. with a few. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm lucky sure. you. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They don't smell great. That's all I'll say. <laughs> no, Mm-mm. no, but you do. It's, it's a weird get, thing to say, but you do actually get used to you it. You do. Yeah. It's worse. I think when mm-hmm. it's in progress in a confined space and you walk into it while it's happening rather than being there from oh, start yeah. to finish. Yeah. When I first learned how to like my first anatomy class, we did like a dissection of a dog, which was horrifying and made like this is my second day of college and I was like holy crap what did I get myself into and like when we did them I like had to have Vicks underneath my nose because I couldn't handle the smell and like now I was like oh whatever yeah you get through it's fine it's fine yeah (laughs) anyways back to the story Around the same time as the second autopsy and all of the recent publicity, a man named Martin went to the Wood River Police. He had went to high school with Carla and worked with a woman who claimed that at a party shortly after the murder, a man said he had been at Carla's house on the day that she was killed. Police were able to locate this woman named Vicki White and brought her in for an interview. She confirmed the story and added that the man at the party mentioned that when Carla's body was found, she had a bite mark on her shoulder. He also mentioned that he was going to have to leave town as he would likely be considered a prime suspect. At the time, she didn't think that these details had any importance to the investigation, but they certainly did. 
no one, including the investigators, had known about the bite marks until two years later. Suspicious. Yeah. I don't care if you didn't think the evidence was important. Right. What he said was important. If some dude tells you that he was at the house of Mm -hmm. the murder victim and he knows details about the body, you go to the cops. Just just do it. Just go. Even if you're wrong. Yeah. What's it going to hurt? Exactly. They're not going to find out it was you. No. This could have been solved years prior. Two years prior. Exactly. Anyways. When in doubt, go to the police. Report the people. Go to the police. <laughs> so trust the... no one. <laughs> <laughs> trust no one. So true. I don't trust anyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Me just neither. A few. Just a few. <laughs> so who was the man at the party? It was John Pranty. I could guess that. You think? Yeah. Am I giving it away a little bit? (laughs) Interestingly, the host of the party, whose name was Spencer, had also mentioned that Paul Maine had given him details about how Carla's body was found that same night. Now, the question was, did Maine get the information from Pranty or vice versa? The investigators did not think that Maine was bold enough to have done such a crime or smart enough to set up his friend. Spencer also mentioned seeing John Pranty recently in his old red Volkswagen minibus. Not quite a Beetle, but it was pretty close to John Douglas's prediction. And I liked in this part of the book, because John Douglas talked about the graduation of Volkswagen Beetles as murders, yes. murders vehicle into buses because it was like a portable murder station mobile <laughs> mobile yeah, murder mobile right? exactly so i i don't know i really enjoyed that <laughs> after the murder pranty had grown a beard and left town for a while he had been divorced was having trouble with women and was smoking several packs of cigarettes a day he also showed a lot of interest in carla brown's investigation on june 3rd weber secured a court order to obtain dental impressions from john pranty If they were not a match, he would be eliminated as a suspect. The following week, Dr. Levine examined three different impressions belonging to Paul Maine, a second long-standing suspect, and those of John Pranty's. Right away, it was clear that the first two were not the same as the bite marks on the victim, but Pranty's teeth were a perfect match. He was arrested. That (laughs) I know. He was arrested and charged with murder and burglary with intent to commit rape. Paul Maine was also arrested, and he was charged with obstructing justice. John Pranty's trial began in June of 1983, five years from when the murder had taken place. And I found a lot of information about testimonies from the trial, so I wanted to bring up some of the interesting points here. The aunt of Paul Maine testified as she and Paul's sister lived across the street from him and the victim. On the day of the murder, the witness testified that Pranty had gone to Maine's house and the two had sat on the front porch until about 11 a.m. Then they both disappeared until almost noon, at which time they resumed sitting on the porch until 3 p.m. Pranty then left in his car and the witness did not see him for the rest of the day. Pranty's later statements do not line up with the witness's account. When he was arrested at his house, he told officers that he had previously contacted Don Weber and told him he did not want to be considered as a suspect in the ongoing investigation, which, you know, that's how it works. <laughs> Love that. Totally, isn't it? Oh, I just don't want to be yeah. a suspect. So could you just like take me off yeah. your list? Yeah, I just, just throwing <laughs> this out there. I just, I don't really want to be a part of this. It's not really good for my look. 
So I just, I just want to separate myself from this, from this. So if you could please delete my number, (laughs) don't call me. Thank you. (laughs) Forget my name. That would be awesome. Okay. Bye. (laughs) No, you weirdo. No. (laughs) Sorry, dude. He also said that he told Mr. Weber that he had been at Carla Brown's house on the day of the murder, but he wanted to clarify that since speaking to Paul Maine afterwards on the phone, he realized that his statement was incorrect and he had not been at the victim's house that day. <laughs> okay, sure. Oh, believable. Yes, because, you know, his friend reminded him that he was at Carla's house the day prior to the murder, not the actual day of the murder. Sure. Right. Right. Believable. Very convenient. Whatever you say. (laughs) During the trial, Pranti was asked if he had met the victim at school, which he stated that he had not and he did not know her. The only time that he had seen her was the day before the murder when she was in her front yard. At this point, he again stated that he had not been inside Carla Brown's house at all. Gosh, you guys should see how many times my eyes are rolling over here. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> and I'm going to keep going because later on, he changed his story again. He recalled arriving at Paul Maine's house on the morning of the murder. <clears throat> sorry, The morning of the murder, leaving, and then returning. He had gone to Paul Maine's to see if he wanted to put in job applications with him. He figured he sat around with Paul from about 10 to 12 or 1. He left his friend's house when police started showing up because he didn't want to be caught smoking weed and drinking on the front porch. Naturally. (laughs) Because weed's the thing that's going to make you disappear, not the murder that you committed in the house next door. Exactly. Cool. Later that night, Paul and him reconnected at a different friend's house. John Pranty recalled, this stuck in my mind that Paul showed up here and he, and he was shook to some degree. And he went on to explain more about what was going on over there at Carla's. And at this point, he was told by Paul that Carla was dead. Oh, Mm -hmm. he was told by Paul. Yes. For the first time, Mm. he had no idea. Mm. Mm. I believe that. Mm -hmm. Me too. (sighs) The next time he had heard about the murder was a few days later at the party in which Vicky and Spencer had attended. He claimed that Spencer was joking and suggesting that he was the one that committed the crime. Pranty went on to say that it was actually Spencer that had brought up the bucket of water and the bite marks. He, of course, didn't know anything about that. Well, naturally. Mm -hmm. He wasn't there, remember? He doesn't want to be a suspect. Right. (laughs) Such an idiot. I do these, like, finger, like, ooh, invisible, not here. And it's like, you're recording a podcast, you idiot. Nobody can see you. I can see you and I appreciate Thank the hand you. gestures. So it's fine. Thank you. Because I'm also a hand talker. I'm waving at you. I'm very much so. And I have to keep my hands busy the entire time I talk. So if we ever did a live show, people would think I'm some sort of crazy because I have to like move my hands or make circles on my hand or like anything. I don't know. My hands just have to move while I talk. And it's very strange. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Also during the trial, an ex-girlfriend of John Pranty's had testified. Susan Lutz had stated that once they were laying in bed and quote, he kind of whispered in my ear that he killed a woman. Creepy. Run. (laughs) Run away. Like, Like get out of bed and run. Go anywhere but there. 
When she asked if that was true, he said, I can't really talk about it because I'll lose my freedom. When she asked why did he do it, he said he was mad. Susan also stated that he had bitten her on the neck multiple times and she did not like that. She said specifically he had bitten her on the left shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like his thing. A thing. Yeah. Gross. Gross. (laughs) I know. During the trial, there was, of course, a lot of debate over the bite mark evidence. The defendant's dentist testified that the spacing in the upper front teeth were quite unique and occurs in less than 1% of the patients that he sees. In the 17 years that he had been practicing, he estimated that he had seen such spacing less than 15 times. Other dentists and orthodontists testified that the photos used were not taken with any scale and therefore could not be used as reference. The photos were also taken at angles, so this too provides inaccurate information. Another indication of distortion in the pictures was that the pathologist was pulling the victim's skin tightly, so this could have increased the size of spaces between the marks. One dentist classified the photographs of the wounds in question as one step above useless for purposes of comparison. Well, like you said before, there's been lots of like debate over mm-hmm. bite mark evidence, but at the time that this happened, Ted Bundy had just recently been convicted on bite mark evidence. So exactly. People were a little more prone to believe that yes. this bite mark could be legit and it, it wasn't yet a, a debunked science. So yes, exactly. It was quite like, compelling and just put one of the most notorious serial killers ever seen behind bars. So. Right. Yeah. And there's a, a really memorable picture of Ted Bundy, like <sighs> in his trial, looking at the pictures, the bite mark impressions and the impressions from his teeth. It's just one that like sticks with me for whatever reason. He's just like, God damn it. Like yeah. looking at that picture, like, well, shit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's really tough. I do think in some cases, I think it can be beneficial if they're quite unique marks as mm-hmm. they're saying this case is, but at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, you can get bruised and bruises can spread and change shape and everything like that. So it's, it's pretty difficult to say for sure. I mean, I feel like if I bit something and was like leaving a bite mark, my impression would be unique because I got Mm -hmm. hit in the face with the steel gate and my front tooth got pushed backwards. So it's, yeah, it doesn't sit in line with my other one. So that, yeah, it's not normal. Right. Right. So, so I think a unique impression like that could be, could be used. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's don't, interesting. Not yeah. that I'm ever going to bite somebody. I'm not going to, my teeth marks are not going to wind up at a crime scene. I, I was promise. going to say that. <laughs> Dude, I can't even bite an apple like a normal human because of that injury. So it's fine. So everybody <laughs> biting people. You're safe. It's okay. We don't have to worry. Bye. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> In the end, however, John Pranty was found guilty and sentenced to 75 years in prison. Afterwards, a member of Carla's family presented Don Weber with a very unique gift. She embroidered a little tapestry for him. The border included the pattern rectangle, space, rectangle, space, triangle, which was the same pattern of the bite mark left on Carla's body. The embroidery included Don Weber's slogan during the trial, you can lie through your teeth, but your teeth don't lie. John N. Pranty, July 15th, 1983. And I quite like that. Okay, as a cross-stitcher, mm-hmm. I love that. Me that too. is so freaking cool. I know. I was like, I want that on love my it. wall. <laughs> it's 
weird to want on your wall, friend, but yeah. But it's, it would go with my office and the theme of my Mary I mean, office. I could stitch it for you if you really want. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying the original one would be what I wanted, not okay. a copy. Okay. That would just be strange. Okay. Yeah, that <laughs> no, would be I mean, I mean, the original one from the trial would be super cool. Yeah, probably would cost you a lot though, I think. Probably, I would think. Mm-hmm. To this day, John Pranty is still trying to clear his name, even though he had actually been released on parole last December. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, what? Uh-huh. That's right. So if he was sentenced to 75 years and he's already out, you may ask, how does that work? <laughs> well, at the time of his sentence, the truth in sentencing law was not in effect, so Pranti was allowed a day off his sentence for every good day he served. I hate that. I hate it so much. I hate that so much. How did anybody think that was a good idea? A good idea? Like maybe a minute. You could add up the minutes. Sure. I'll go maybe with that. But yeah. a day, a day for every good day you have. Oh my God. Not okay. They haven't spent much time with psychopaths then because. Nope. Psychopaths and sociopaths can be quite normal and quite good. Yeah. And they know until exactly. Until they don't want to be. Yeah. They know exactly what to say to, you know, make themselves yeah. present mm. as normal. And I'm healthy now. I'm all good. Just like Ed Kemper. You fixed me. Yeah. Being cleared Bye. by psychologists as he has dead bodies in his car. And he's like, I'm fixed. I'm doing so great. Ha ha. You guys Bye. are awesome. You fixed my brain. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, doesn't work so well. Associate Judge Neil Schroeder has denied Pranti the chance to file a second post-conviction petition, which Pranti claims would prove his innocence. Pranti and members of the Chicago-based Exoneration Project have claimed the debunked bite mark evidence was used to convict him. Attorney Josh Tepfer said that exoneration could be a great benefit for his client, even if it comes after he is released. Pranti has consistently insisted he is innocent, and he would like to have the public record reflect that. Exoneration could affect his future prospects for such issues as employment. Schroeder wrote that in order to file such a petition, the new findings must provide conclusive evidence that the jury got it wrong. Quote, the new evidence must support total vindication and exoneration, not merely a reasonable doubt of the defendant's innocence, the judge wrote. The new evidence is not conclusive, Schroeder said. The attacks on bite mark evidence are not enough to warrant a successive post-conviction petition because there was other evidence that pointed to Pranti. Schroeder said that there's also evidence jurors paid little attention to the bite mark evidence, even though at the time it had attracted national attention. There was also much circumstantial evidence introduced at the trial, including Pranti's self-incriminating statements. So the question is, not that our opinions really matter, but do you think John Pranti is guilty of murdering Carla Brown? I thought he was guilty from the first time he was introduced in the book. Me too. I was like, oh, that guy did it. And I like, I don't know if it was how John Douglas wrote it, how he was described. I was just like, that guy did it. Mm -hmm. And then when they were going through the profile, like when, when Douglas made up the profile for him, I was like, still that guy. Like, oh yeah. I certainly think he, he did it. I think if it happened in today's time, they would have a really hard time presenting that case at a trial because 
Mm-hmm. So much of the evidence is circumstantial and the bite mark mm-hmm. evidence wouldn't hold up nowadays. But no. regardless, I, I do think he's guilty and I think he did it. And I think Paul Maine knew more about it than what he was saying as well. And I wish I could have Agreed. found more information about what his involvement was, but I definitely think there was there was an aspect to that as well. I personally feel like Pranti went to Maine's house to clean up afterwards. Definitely, yeah. It just timeline of when neighbors had seen them together when mm-hmm. they saw them apart right like he like showed up there and he's like yeah i gotta i gotta use your shower i got a friend. problem yeah don't ask too many questions yeah just go back to smoking your weed and drinking your beer and i'll meet you on the porch okay exactly yeah 100 i think that's that's what happened um my sources were mindhunter of course uh naturally case text it was a bunch of transcripts from court hearings and everything like that. It was difficult to read, but it was very informative. Um, the telegraph.com and forensic files. I watched a forensic files about this, which I is forensic files. I know it's great. Uh, it is in season four, episode eight body of evidence is what it's called. And yeah, it was interesting to watch, especially because John Douglas even made an appearance. So it was really interesting to see him actually talk about the case and he explained the difference between organized and disorganized killers and what the crime scene told about the attacker. So that was awesome. And then we also saw other people like Dr. Case, like the second person to do the autopsy she talked in there. And so I really, I like that, that I could see the actual people. Um, But a few things I didn't like so much (laughs) was how Carla Brown was portrayed. She was presented as a dumb blonde with huge boobs wearing a basically see-through tube top and short shorts and she was rude when talking to her neighbor and his friend who was of course John Pranti and by all accounts from what I've read she was a very nice girl who was friends with everyone so the reenactment the the title was literally like who killed the all-american girl and that's like not what you picture when you think all-american girl that's what you picture when you say stripper yeah exactly it was kind of disgusting the reenactment felt a little bit victim blamey to me. So not a fan, even if she was dressed provocatively and she was being rude, even though I don't think that's true in no way it makes her at fault for this brutal no. attack. 100% no. of the blame goes to the grosso that did the horrible crime. End of story. So that's all I got to say about that. She's unpacking and organizing her new house. She could be in her fucking underwear, a pair of slippers and a t-shirt with no bra. Exactly. Why the fuck not? Because you should be allowed to without, you know, being worried about getting murdered. That's not okay. And raped by your fucking neighbor's gross friend. Exactly. So yeah, that's my story. That's what I have to say. It's interesting. I did want to comment on Mm -hmm. her being put back in the sweater. Oh, yeah. Do you have thoughts on that? Because I feel like he did all this work to like post her with her head in the mm-hmm. barrel, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, he obviously raped her, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then to put her back in like this heavy, like chunky knit sweater that's buttoned all the way up to the top, I found yes. such a strange detail. I also thought it was a strange detail and I couldn't quite make the connection until right before we had started recording. And I can't remember where I read this. It might've been, uh, I really wish I remembered where I read this, but 
the amount of um, injury there was to kind of the chest and the shoulders and the neck, I was like, he was probably trying to cover all of that up with the sweater and then put the socks around the neck as well. Cause he didn't actually strangle her with the socks. He just tied the socks around her neck. So I think he was trying to Mm. cover up all of her bad injuries and then also putting her head in the barrel of water also did the same. And there were no injuries to her lower half of the body. And I think at that time he was like, just done and left. I don't know. That's a little strange, but I think that's a big aspect to it was covering the the wounds. Yeah. I wondered if it was like, because he knew her from high school, he had that connection with her and, you know, like people Mm -hmm. who murder somebody that they know and they care about that lots of times they'll cover them up. Yeah. Right. So I wondered if that was maybe it, or if he was just actually covering up on on her shoulder and whatnot. So, right. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that she had no, she was naked from the waist down. I feel like that, like he would have covered her more up because I feel like that's pretty degrading. Yeah. So yeah. Totally. Hard to say, but it's really interesting. Yeah. Weird detail. I like mm-hmm. Don't like totally. to say that I like it, but like, it was like one of those details that it was like. It's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. 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 All right. Are you ready for some fluff and stuff? I am so ready for some fluff and stuff. Excellent. Well, I figured we'd do something a little bit Christmassy because it will be just about Christmas when this comes out. And that's crazy. And I'm not ready. (laughs) Oh, I have one present left to buy. Yeah. And it's my husband's present from my kids. So that's like a $20 gift (laughs) and we'll be good. And by the end of this week, it will be done. You know what? I haven't even bought in a single present, so I don't want to hear it. (laughs) And I, oh man, I've been baking cookies. Like, oh my God, I should not ever bake cookies because I eat way too many of them. That's the problem. <laughs> and I'm making like, I'm making chocolates and oh my God, again, shouldn't make those because they taste delicious, but I'm having a lot of fun. But seriously, it's my thing. I listen to us mm-hmm. podcast and I listen to other people podcast and I bake shit. So that's not my thing. It sounds <laughs> so lovely. And whenever I get a snap from you of doing that, I'm like, man, I wish I was doing that instead of what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Or I'm like decorating my Christmas tree and in the background, there's like sweet Christmas carols playing. And then it's yeah. like, and he hacked her up with a knife through my earbuds. So, you yeah, know. balance, balance. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My question today is what is an unusual Christmas tradition that you have? Ooh, okay. Um, so my family is super fun and we started doing this quite a few years ago because my, both my grandparents were failing. And so life was stressful for my mom and her sisters. And so we decided that once, you know, we did like all the normal, like traditional Christmassy things, so Christmas breakfast and opening the presents and stuff. Once Christmas night hit and the younger kids went to bed, we would throw a theme party, which we had some fun theme parties. Like we did nice redneck Christmas the one year and we did seventies Christmas. And like, we dress up, we like do mm-hmm. the things. We had 80s Christmas and I like legit brought my NES with old school Duck Hunt and old school Mario. And oh, we had man. like Mario competitions and my hair was crimped and it was huge. And we did a murder mystery party. That sounds and so cool. I was, I got to be the murder victim. It was so much fun. Um, <laughs> but my advice to anybody is don't do a murder mystery party with your family because you wind up like 
having to be like the person who's having an affair with the captain of the boat that you're on, who turns out to be your dad, you know, flirting with the bartender who was played by your brother. (laughs) Yeah. I could see how that would be a little strange. I was like, this is disturbing, but so fun. I love it. And, and so there's talk this year about maybe if we can have Christmas together, like we would all love to have Christmas together, Mm -hmm. um, to have a toga party. Oh, that sounds fun. I love that. Yeah. And I feel like my husband's going to get toged. Like instead of pants, he's going to get toged. And I feel like that's going to happen. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm rooting that we can yep. rooting for the fact that we can have Christmas. Like we want to have Christmas. And yeah, if I'm wrapped up in a sheet, I will take a picture. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> that is so cool. What a fun tradition. Yeah. 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 And it's kind of like slacked off in the last few years, but we still always wind up doing something fun. Yeah. Christmas night, like just, Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that. Yeah. It sounds so lame now. I was just going to say, dad, (laughs) um, me and my cousins, we always end up watching Force Gump together every single Christmas and it's not planned and it's not like a, this is our tradition, but it happens every single year and it's just lovely. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. It's not a Christmas movie. It's just like. It's not, but it just, it's just you know, it just always Tom feels Hanks right. Yeah. Be in forest. Yeah, that's right. So we all just gather around in a small bedroom in my grandparents' basement and we're just like, let's watch some Forrest Gump. I love it. Yeah. Love it. One year best. our theme was just like chocolate martinis. Wow. <laughs> so I love that. <laughs> that was a good Christmas. I tell you. I could get on board with yeah. that. Yeah. There was some, some headaches in the morning. Oh, I bet. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) Oh, that was one of the nights that I got like, I love you, man, drunk with my cousin's now husband. And yeah, my husband was already in bed and he was like, oh, honey, if I pulled half the shit that you did last night, (laughs) I would be in trouble forever. Oh my God. I love that so much. Yeah, just good times. (laughs) Oh, this is why we love Christmas. I know. I, I love Christmas. I'm an elf. My yeah. husband has accepted it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. For a long time, though, he had a shirt that had the x-ray of the Grinch's heart when it was all shrunk and, and little. Like, yeah. And he wore that all Christmas. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Love it. Yes. So make sure to answer our question. What is an unusual Christmas tradition you have? And let us know what you think about the episode. You can email us at murdermerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Podcast, Facebook at Podcast, and Twitter at MurderMerlot1. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. And... Michelle, we are going to talk about our next book club book, but I don't know if we're going to. I don't have one yet. (laughs) I know. Hey, so I have been very focused on the Christmas things, as I've already said, Mm -hmm. and I have not picked a book to follow up Mindhunter, but we will be taking a little break between Christmas and New Year's, and I promise I will pick a book before next week. (laughs) Good. Well, keep an eye on our social medias then because we will we'll post our next book there. And we also take suggestions, of course, just saying anything yeah. you're dying to book club about, let us know. Yeah. 
And I was just going to say our next episode will be our Mindhunter book club episode. Just another reminder. And yeah, that will be our last episode of the year. That's crazy. I know. So crazy. You realize this is like episode 37, I believe. So that means we've been doing this for, well, it's been more than 37 weeks because we've missed a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And I got an email from Tara on Boxing Day last year proposing this. Yes. And I was like, yeah, I'm on board. Sign me up. Yep. <laughs> so there was much talk about it. And then I think it was, mm-hmm. we got what, two episodes in before COVID hit? So. Yep. In March. Yep. Because we were like, yeah, murder March. We're going to do it. And then we, yeah, recorded a couple episodes. And then that was, that was it. <laughs> then the world went to shit. Yeah. So, yeah. But it's okay. Yay. Because podcasts, they don't require being next to anybody. You can safely social distance and listen to us and spread the word. You don't have to worry about anything. Just saying. And thank God for technology, even when it glitches like it did today a whole bunch of times yep Uh, we can still do this and have so much fun exactly we love it exactly all right remember to drink wine because it's not good to keep things bottled up bye